Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host. And today my guest is John Kiley. He's the current Senior Lecturer in Performance and Innovation in PE and Sports Sciences at University of Limerick. Our discussion today will be looking into the insights in how to unlock athletic excellence and maximize on-field performance. Welcome, John. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Looking forward to the chat. So, John, for, for those that aren't aware of your work, mate, um, do you mind providing an update on oh yeah, how you sort of got into the industry and uh, all the work experiences you've done from the start to now? Well, I guess getting in, into the industry wasn't a planned thing. It was it was just my life, basically. From when I was a kid, I was into, I guess, what you say, physical improvement. Played a lot of sports, like 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 a lot of kids. At decent levels, uh, coming into my kind of late teens, early 20s, I was getting more and more into combat sports. I was having some success with those. Transitioned to being a coach. Started coaching around 22, 23 um, so that's that, that's quite a chunk of time ago. Experience coming into my kind of and university here, you know, twenty minutes away. I started with a sports science degree at the time. I was kind of floundering around trying to find my way. Predominantly training at day, working at night, just kind of making ends meet. So I thought, okay, I, I like sports. I, I'll, I'll try this, and it went from there basically. So it wasn't a plan. It was an accidental thing. But if you like the the interest, the passion. All the practical experience of being a hard training, limited, injury-ridden athlete, all those kind of hard learning experiences. I, I had plenty of those before I got, I got into the trade. Good. And yeah, for those starting out, I guess sports scientists, exercise scientists that are, yeah, like you said, there is a bit of early on in your adulthood, there is some floundering. I'm sure everyone experiences at some point uh, where you're not sure which way to go. Uh, how important is it you think that you are passionate about working in elite sport to take up coaching at some form, whether it be working with general population or your local football team or, um, but yeah, just, I guess, leading teams and, and coaching people early on in your career. Yeah, well, I mean, it all that experience stood me in good stead. Now, when I said coaching, I was coaching in kind of the local boxing club in the city I'm from. It wasn't flash. It wasn't high tech. It wasn't, you know, anything like that. It was, it was hardcore. Um, and, and it was pretty much the same with my, my training and competitive life as well. It was it was a lot of hard work, a lot of all out of the spotlight grind. That uh, I think it's it's good to have behind you. It wasn't the best fun at the time, but it was enjoyable. You know, when you're when you're young and you're competitive and you be good and you're, you're you're passionate about something. Yeah, it's good. It was it was it was a lot of hard work. And who have made some strong influences, John, over over your career that have helped shape your philosophy, uh, mentors, if you like. Well, I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm from kind of small town Ireland, so there wasn't really anyone around that was uh, established in the field. But obviously I had, you know, my, my local boxing coach is, is still a great friend of mine and, and he was a big influence on in me, Fitzgerald. And then once I started working in the field, didn't necessarily success. Good coaches is people were conscientious, were diligent, thought through what they were doing very carefully were willing to change in the face of new information, good relationships. So a lot of these things that uh, aren't necessarily medals won, you know, who was the famous athlete you coach, not that type of stuff. Because a lot of that for me is luck of the draw, right place, right time, right athlete. And the athlete makes the coach more often than the coach makes the athlete. So my kind of criteria for a great coach would be all those other things, all those softer skills. And it's not even the, the technical delivery because technical delivery and philosophy changes coach to coach to coach, even within 
you know, I, I've worked across a range of sports at a high level and even in, you know, track and field, if you take sprints, the philosophies change. You know, they're different. There has to be something more. I've seen successful coaches in all the event groups that are the obsessions. Design of programs is the same. There's something else going on. And I think that something else is their personality, their ability to engage, the, their ability to subtly convince the athlete that we're on a track here and this is a good track and this is going to lead to where you want to go. I think all of that stuff, all that non-physical stuff is a fundamental driver of the physical outcomes that we, you know, as coaches historically lock ourselves in the dark room and, and try and plan out the training, planning all the nuts and bolts. I think we've overegged how important that is. We've underegged how important all the, the relationship stuff, communication stuff, the coach being a good example, coach setting, helping set the tone but having the athlete at the centre of their process. It's got to lock a door here because there might be invaders. That ability to influence those in front of you is, it, who have been some of the strongest coaches, if you like, that have sort of stood out to you. Strongest? Well, I, I have worked with a, a couple of uh, quite famous coaches in different team sports, as in, you know, FIFA World Coach of the Year or very successful rugby coaches. But I take a lot of my answers from track and field. And for, I don't ask me why, but track and field has always been really important in influencing other sports. Even though it's, you know, completely different. Like if I specialise in 100 metres, how does that relate to playing a, uh, a football match? But it, it just does have that. In- so I worked with, I was at a strength conditioning for UK track and field, coming to the Beijing cycle. And then I, I continued on to, up until uh, 2012. And yeah, I worked for really good coaches. There was a guy called Mark Rowland. He's currently in Canada. He spent the past few years, or maybe, I don't know, maybe half a dozen, 10 years in the States. Uh, and before that, he coached in the UK endurance. Of course, a lot of people, when I was working with him, he was he was working with Mo Farah. This was in the build-up to Beijing now before Mo really broke. And he's just a really, really good coach. Again, had been brought up in the sport, in the sport inside out, and just was a, a really good communicator. So Mark was good. Again, a lot of people, if you're outside track and field, won't have heard of him. Very well known within endurance circles in track and field. Another influence, Aston Moore. Again, um, previous uh, Olympian, but an Olympian that had had a, had a hard time with injury. And I often think in my or brain that athletes who nearly made it or, you know, who, who didn't make it quite to their potential because of injury, that's a hell of a learning experience. Mm. And I'd much prefer as a coach, I much prefer at that history. Anytime I've seen an athlete who had a tenure career, you know, with not a lot of pitfalls, not a lot of speed bumps in the road. It's a, and again, this is me jumping to a conclusion. The person who's, who was injured, who had trouble, learns to adapt, learns to be versatile, uh, learns robust psychology. The one who has a, who's just phenomenally talented, normally can't understand why you aren't phenomenally talented. And if this worked for me, it should work for you. And they just maybe haven't hit enough troubles in their athletic career to force Mm -hmm. you to start getting outside the box. So again, this is a very simple, and please don't, (laughs) this is a very simple, the ex-athlete who's been injured, who's had hardship, picking from that bunch of people than this bunch of people who had had the spectacular careers and the multiple medals, et cetera. Bit of a tangent there, but... Yeah, it ties in nicely what you said before about the importance of uh, the, the technical aspects are important as a coach, but it's the personal ability to be able to connect and communicate with the athletes. And I guess if you've experienced hardship, you'll be able to empathize with athletes that are going through, whether it be a significant injury or uh, loss in form where things aren't going well. 
uh, which is a big part of coaching as well, isn't it? No, uh, absolutely. And just that ability to uh, think that it is, you know, um, I tell you where I was going to go with this. One of the big experiences I had early on in my life was this is before, this is for the Athens cycle. A lot of your conventional, you, you have to reinvent training to suit the individual in front of you because everyone is so obviously different and so obviously different levels of ability that you have to think more flexibly. So, you know, you, you can't squat if, for example, you can't grip the bar or maybe you've just one upper limb. Do a fundamental exercise like a squat the way you would. So you need to be thinking outside the box and need to be thinking about, well, what's fundamental? Okay, well, maybe fundamental is I need to increase X, Y, or Z. How will I do that in a non-conventional way, in a way that suits this act? This act? So I spent a few years, you know, with lots of different uh, power experience and you get into the habit of, okay, I need to tear up all that convention and just invent something that works for this person right now. And then, you know, at the same time, I was working with uh, uh, able-bodied athletes and, and there you think, well, actually, they're just as different as the, as the um, it's just not as visibly obvious all the time. Yeah. But, you know, you, you kind of get into that mindset, no, no, everything is a unique problem. I can't have this off-the-shelf solution that I'm going to apply with you and then deploy with this person over here. And that gets you into the realm of, or just into the mindset of oh, this person right now. Now, that's an easy question to ask, but before you can answer that, you need to get information. How do you get information? Okay, well, the obvious things are with lots of metrics. The other thing is, well, well, what are the athletes? What do they feel works for them or doesn't work for them? And again, these are things that in some coaching cultures, again, it depends on the sport, tend to get neglected, tend to be because we're kind of brought up to think that, well, it's what you do physically that fundamentally drives what you get, you know, the physical adaptations. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think that adaptations might originate with a physical stimulus, physical stress, but are modulated by a whole set of biological processes, in turn modulated by a whole set of neuro neural activity, so neural activity, like neurobiological process. If I believe something will work, mm. I'm going to be stressed when I go into that. I'm going to be, you know, sleep, things like that are going to be less di disrupted. And through a whole host of different avenues, you get a more, you start getting nudged towards more positive adaptation. Whereas if you were anxious about something, if you don't believe in something, if you're like, why the hell am I doing this? And you're subconsciously maybe reducing the amount of physical effort you put into it, et cetera, et cetera. Again, there's a whole host of physical, or sorry, a whole host of kind of strings and tributaries that start nudging you in a negative outside of our conventional education where we're not really taught about. We're taught about, well, if you want to get stronger, this number of sets and reps at this percentage of max, blah, blah, blah. If you want to get fitter, you need to do this type of session. Yeah, you know, it's important that we need to think about those things, but conventionally really emphasize this as if it's the only thing and really uh, de-emphasize the fact that, well, actually, how much the athlete trusts you is fundamental. Whether they'll follow you is fundamental, not just from a, and it's not a kind of a fluffy nice to do. It is a fundamental part of you being a successful coach, trainer, SNC, rehabber, or, you know, physio, whatever your role might be. Yeah, it's a... a it leads you to go into with that, but I guess in terms of when did the penny drop for you as a as a coach, where you recognise those softer skills, how impactful they can be, and how important it is to develop a, a relationship with those in front of you to have confidence and trust in your processes. It's very hard to say when the penny dropped because it probably kind of you know dropped a tiny bit and then stuck and then dropped another little bit a little bit later. But what I would say is I spent a lot of time like and and this would be from my kind of teens. 
reading reading kind of whatever sports literature I could get at. And at the time, this was all the old Soviet stuff, periodization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it was very dogmatic and very prescriptive. And if you do this, and I was out, you know, in my backyard or, you know, setting up all these types of circuits as per this old white Soviet that I'd never met, you know, and, and like I was a true believer. But then, you know, you go through a load of life experiences. And if I was to pick one thing, it would say is, you know, around kind of uh, maybe 2002, 2008, maybe I was exposed to a lot of really successful coaches, as in, you know, multiple Olympic goals. It, it was part of my role to, you know, be looking at programs and, and talking to them about their programs. It was very hard to find a common trend. They all had very different belief commonalities, even within very similar event groups or very similar sports. And I guess that was something that nudged that to drop a bit more. It was like, well, well, maybe the maybe what great coaches have in common isn't necessarily their their technical ability, but their ability to inspire, their ability to get athletes to follow, to buy in, the ability for them to raise their athletes' expectations, the ability to kind of help shape a shared this is where I want to go and this coach. And I think once you have that, then then you have something that you can work on. How perfect your training program has to be, I think you should make it as perfect as you can, you know, for your beliefs. But I think there's a lot else go- that that's going on outside of the mechanical description of that program that leads to future success. And just to kind of drive that home, I've worked with that with coaches again of similar success levels. And again, we're talking Olympic gold, Olympic silver, or a, a lot of team sport, international success. And let's say you have, you know, they and and they have completely different. Flag. They might do vaguely the same type of stuff, like everyone does a bit of strength training. And if you're in, you know, if you're a, a footballer, you'll do some small-sided games. So maybe there's technical commonalities, but philosophy, how they're delivered, how they're laid out, completely different. You transition back to the kind of the literature and it's like, this is the best thing to do in this situation, or this is the best thing to do in this situation. And I guess what becomes clear after a couple of decades with your head down is, hey, there, there is no, this is the best. There isn't even a need that... The, no, not there isn't a need. That's not even a right way to think about this. There is no best. There is just what is the best guess for now and then how are we going to evaluate that pretty quickly, learn from it pretty quickly, change, change. And it's just maybe trying to plump an evolutionary path rather than map out a, this is what we're going to do for the, for this season or for, our, for this Olympic quadrennial. Yeah, so it's sort of like there's a model to follow. Yeah, we're exactly yeah. enough. Yeah, no, that's great. It's um, it's such a fascinating topic to dive into in terms of coach of any level. I guess there's continual improvement where you can grow from that aspect of how can you inspire someone? Because like you said before, it's not just physical differences, but it's the their psychological differences, their personality differences, how to engage that person and, and get buy-in. Do you feel like those skill sets as the coach are just as trainable as the technical side in terms of like your coaching eye and your, and your ability to to communicate what you're seeing with the athlete in front of you? That's actually a great question. I'll tell you why. So, and I know I'm, I'm generalizing ridiculously, but if you go to most organizations or certification body and how you train the various professions around physical adaptation, whether it's technical coaches or SNCs or rehabbers or whatever it might be, it's a very mechanical. And there might be, and there's more and more these days, there's a little kind of tip your hat well, obviously, there's psychological issues and there's emotional issues generally underplayed. And we don't really get any guidelines of how we can be better. And we don't get any 
training in it. I'll give you two examples. And you mentioned one of them, communication. Uh, I work with a guy called Brett Bartholomew, who's in the States. Don't know if you've come across Brett's work, but that's Brett's business. How do I teach coaches? And he he, he works with other domains, business, firefighters, etc. How do I teach people just the water you swim in, right? You communicate all the time. And if you're a bad communicator, there's going to be mixed messages. The picture you have in your head doesn't efficiently go into the athlete. The belief that you have, the direction you have, none of that is transmitted properly. It's the water we swim in, but we're not trained to swim. As we're growing up as coaches, we don't get anything. And as far as I know, breath is the only educational course that is offered to cope. So that's one thing. Decision making. So how how we communicate all the time, we also make decisions as coaches all the time. Tutored in, these are the basic principles of good decision making. Or these are the common, and all these, these things are known in other domains, like there's a decision making literature going back 90 years. We know a lot about decision making and it's been revolutionized in the, in the last kind of 10 or 12 years. But we don't, even though we make decisions all the time, that's our job effectively. We don't get any education. Um, and again, I, I, I work with a, a couple of folks in sport, Brian King, Alan McDonald, PJ Wilson. And again, those guys are all experienced practitioners and they're all interested in, okay, well, in my domain, in my particular sport, how can I make that decision-making better just by introducing some basic decision-making principles? Um, and, you know, this could be just to put a little bit of meat on, on, on that. When do you actually need to make a decision? Like, what's the timeline? Do you need to make a decision now? How are you emotionally? Are you hot? Okay, if you're hot, then you don't want to make an important decision now. And you think about it, we do this coaches all the time. I'm a bit pissed off with this person because of X, Y, or Z. And I'm a little bit kind of, excuse me, narky with them. And I, I mean, maybe I'm going to push them a little harder than, than than I should today. And you start making bad decisions based on these emotions that are bubbling under. Or it could be that you've got a bad night's sleep or all these types that carry into your coaching inevitably and that distort your perspective to start how you make decisions. And I've seen one really clear example, coach pissed off with athlete, I, I should say, ex-Olympic gold medalist uh, in, in the run-up to an Olympics <clears throat> away in training camp. They were getting on one of nerves, nerves. Coach forced him to do one more rep. You know, no, you have to do another one, you have to do another one, hamstring, or maybe it wasn't hamstring. I won't give you the, the injury actually, but blew up, gone. Olympic four-year cycle, dead and buried. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to teach them a lesson. And that happens all of the time. That was just a spectacularly um, influential um, error. I've gone the long way around saying, I think that there's so much more education that we Communication is one of them, a very obvious one. Decision-making is another obvious one. But of course, there's other. But historically, we've come from a place where we believe that the adaptations you get and um, whether you realize your potential is down to the physical work you do. Yeah. And of course, there's no one has taken that away. But the physical work you do and confidences and biases and buying expectations all wrapped around coach athlete relationship and the athlete faith. And just to draw a line under that kind of long diversion, you'll often see it if you look, especially in the team sport. If you were to pick one thing from a coach for, for a coach to have to make a difference, it would be had the confidence and often that confidence comes because there's all these kind of legends attached to coaches oh they did this you know or they're coming off a winning streak and that creates an aura and that lasts you know you get a new coaching and normally you get a little bump in results because they come with a repetition but obviously that doesn't last that's not sustainable unless there is some substance there as well and you know we often see that kind of roller coaster of 
this this coach gets success, so they get this bigger job. You know, we see that kind of boom and bust cycle all the time. Instead of believing less about their own press and more about okay, how do I develop as a coach and where do I need to develop and what are my weaklings? And these weaklings aren't where we conventionally think them. They're in things like decision making ability, communication ability. Okay, does another long rant. I hope that made a bit of sense. No, it does. I'd like to go back to the. The injury moment, do you think in your experience, like obviously you can't quantify this, but just in terms of gut feel, if for that preparation for the Olympics, if the athlete and the coach were humming along, there's good vibes, there's strong connection, strong trust, all that, or or that psychosocial aspect is in a really good place, that one extra rep may not have tipped him over the edge? Oh, you, you can't say that. I, I, I couldn't say that because it's always a confluence of factors. Sure. But I will, I mean, if we look at something like coordination, so coordination for me, I'm in danger of going off on another mad tangent here. Coordination to me is everything. It's like a, this super capacity that all other capacities uh, are, are, are facilitated by, like your endurance is related to your your coordination, your strength, expression, your your um, your ability to change direction or decelerate, they're all fundamentally related to coordination. But we don't really talk about coordination. But coordination is basically just your, your body and brain's ability to communicate and move in a way that is non-risky and efficient and gets the job done. So it's a kind of triangulation between those. You mentioned my, my, my gut feel about about that injury. Well, my gut feel would be you, you could just get away with that type of stuff all the time. Yeah. But it's not good enough to, oh, well, I got away with it, so it was the right decision. If you were to be clinical about it, it would, what you would do is think, hang on, before I make this decision, I need to pause. I need to check my emotions. Yes, I am pissed off with that person. Okay, that's not a good thing. Distance myself from that emotion. Then it's going to be, okay, well, what's the reward? Well, the reward is this person gets another rep in, you know, maybe six weeks out from, so it's one more rep. And the difference it will make is likely infinitesimal. What's the likely risk? Okay, well, he's been complaining. He's tired. He's been, you know, he has some awareness on that lake. Okay, so the, it's an asymmetric reward risk, if you like, balance. The reward is something small. And in the coach's head, I, I think the reward was, I'll teach him less, proportionally. High. What's the right decision? And I'm not saying the right decision is always pulled back because it's not. And if you pull back too much, too often, then you create at least an arm rubber because they don't get enough to weigh all these things off and you have to do it quickly. But the first thing you have to do is step back and take a breath and go, oh, my emotions, it can't be driven by a knee-jerk. Yes, it takes a lot of self-awareness. It does. And the thing is, and I'm not pointing the fingers at any coaches, we're not educated to even think like that. We're kind of educated in a way that it's all gut. You know, you, you, you mentioned the phrase gut feel. It's all gut feeling. If you have success, you must be good at the gut feel. And that kind of builds up the unjustified self-confidence. And we're all, all humans are victim to this, you know, and it's clear. And the biggest enemy of good decision-making is decision-making arrogant. It's me feeling, well, I've gotten this decision right a thousand times before. So I'll make this decision now and I'm good at decision-making and my gut is giving me some type of expert intuition. And you investigate that and it's been investigated extensively in, in, in other complex domains and we are really bad at uh, gut feel but we're really good at convincing us gut instinct that is very effective and it's just that we can't edit our success and failures we're trying to explain away failures well that wasn't my fault that was just they didn't prepare properly from the athlete's perspective is there an element of onus on the athlete to say look i'm not doing that rep i'm just going to listen to my body here and 
you know, how do you think it from that point of view? Obviously, that's you know, it's a coach and an athlete's relationship. It's the coach's responsibility, I guess, to prescribe training and, and manage the load and all that. And the, and the athletes do the right thing, I guess, technically in terms of trusting their coach. But at what point do you do you back the athlete in to take onus on their own? It's their Olympics at the end. That's another really good question. And we're kind of getting into the weeds here. But I do think it's relevant and important to, to coach, shake hands and go, okay, you're ready. I think it comes to you and maybe their training age is very young and their training experience is very And you need to be a little bit more dictatorial, if you like. But at the same time, you farm out little bits of education. This is why we're doing this. This is how it should feel. This is how it should feel the morning after. If you're having residual to building little bits of education to farm out, okay, I need feedback. So you're building up that kind of feed forward feedback loop. You're you're getting a handle on, well, what does this athlete actually be? Because if you start pushing against their deeply held beliefs, that is a, that's a road to nowhere. Wasted energy and higher risk. So I think there's that gradually progressive, gentle, nudging approach about, oh, I need to educate this athlete. So the conversation we're having at the start, this season isn't the same as the one we're having next year. The conversation we're having when they're 22 is the same as the conversation we're having when they're 30. You're gradually farming it out. Okay, you need to make more more decisions here. Uh, but, but you can't just start off it comes to your camp. And it could be any age, but they haven't come up in a system where they've been educated or had any uh They've never been asked for feedback. You have to kind of get them used to that before it can be effective. But I would think that, the, you know, the the most things that I've worked in have been in ones where the athlete is clearly respected and their perspective is clearly respected. They make, in a way, well, I'm not doing that, but in a discussion type way, in a feedback feed forward. Now, in some sports, one other consideration is, like, especially team sports, you know, in a really busy competition period, that needs to be in a way that's efficient. Coach doesn't have time to talk to every member of the squad every day before you do training. But there's all the shortcuts around that. It's just making the squad aware, okay, we're going into a heavy period. Uh, this is what we'll be doing. Any issues, we need to talk about it now in this forum or a different forum. Uh, you know, if X, Y, or Z is happening to you, or if, let's say, I don't know, sets sensitization to some previous injury or residual fatigue, if you feel they're, they're reaching uh, dangerous levels, we need to talk and we may reduce or we may not. We'll have to look and make a context-specific decision. So there's always ways you can do it in an intelligent way. You can make things very time efficient, regardless of whether you're working with one a- athlete in the Olympic cycle or you're working with multiple athletes through a heavy competition period. You touched on earlier how strong of an influence track and field has had on your coaching as well as the wider industry in, in performance sports uh, and also coordination, how in, how important that is. Do you feel like that's the one of the gaps in terms of a hundred meters, preparing a hundred meter sprinter compared to a rugby football player is the you know, different coordinated, different shapes and angles they need to hit on the field uh, and, and what are some other factors that you need to take into account to improve, I guess, on-field athletic performance for a a team sport yeah, athlete. That's a really interesting one. So sprinting and is, is actually a great example because there are such strong stylistic conventions around exactly what a sprinter should look like. And it gets very deep. There was times when I did believe that. There was times, you know, mostly way back when I thought, no, no, there's a strict template that a sprinter has to make. But the reality is it's probably somewhere in there are basic shapes you need to hit. Purely because that's the way we're designed. Within those kind of... Um, fundamental shapes that there's a lot of individualization in terms of how you how you get there how you hit those shapes so so that's football afl 
whatever it might be, you're hitting multiple shapes under contact while you're making very reflexive decisions. So it's not like that. It, it's a very, very different kind. But yeah, for me, coordination, I mean, coordination isn't necessarily what something looks like, what feels under the hood. And it's, is this efficient? Is it achieving its purpose in terms of is this movement achieving its purpose? Flowing on to the next movement portion in an effective way. All of these things, we have access to all that information in our brain. All the training we do as kids, all the, the, the training we in professional sports, that really refines those, your brain and central nervous system's ability to respond without necessarily, I mean, I don't think you you talk to a football player and tell him, well, we want you to hit this shape when you're moving. I certainly wouldn't. You, you might give some basic things where you need to get your hips low when you're decelerating or let's try out this, those type of things. But really enhancing coordination is about putting them into problems in a gradually progressive way and giving a wide range of, of movement. Certainly in the open field play sports, not so much in the I'm a straight line sprinter. That's all I do. You know, it's all about a quick acceleration and max speed. I don't know if that got to your question. Did this? What about from the recovery side of things? What what a, what's your stance on recovery for an athlete that's in season? So they're going for that week to week performance. Uh, well, I think it's something we get wrong quite a bit, but it's hard. I, I, again, it sounds like I'm blaming. I'm not blaming anyone. It's a very hard problem because you know, certainly in the team sports setting. Different people will recover from different activities in different timescales. But yet we'll, we tend to overlay future stress at kind of set times. You know, we're going to do the field session at this time. We'll do the gym session at this time. Monitoring fatigue, again, that's another complex problem. Fatigue you're monitoring, how you're monitoring, all types. They're all looking through a keyhole trying to describe a room. The best we can do is have multiple keyholes, but then understand that we could be missing some parts of the big picture as well. Um, and for me, I think, again... I think the way forward, like technology has helped to a degree, but I think the way forward is an educated athlete being asked educated questions by the coach and giving educated feedback and, and, and that dialogue and that sense that this is not about finding an excuse to reduce training. Sometimes we're going to need to pump it up because your long-term, you know, your short-term resilience might be facilitated by giving you more rest, but your long-term resilience may be reduced if we keep giving you too much rest. So you're constantly playing that long-term yeah. versus short-term balance. And it's hard to it's hard to do it, but the way not to do it is some off-the-shelf solution. You know, the machine says no, but we're, we're not training today. There needs to be something that's more sensitive, more. It's the understanding that fatigue doesn't show up in, you know, for, for example, I might have no residual fatigue in any of the muscles of my, of my trunk or legs, but my movement will be off because for some reason I have a lot of anxiety. So my movement control will be movement control coordination being inhibited is the best way I know to get injured. So yeah, so again, it's just it's not a physical it's not a physical problem. It's a it's a combination of your perspective, your beliefs, your set of biases and predispositions around those beliefs and around how you feel, around how how scared or confident or nervous you feel about going into specific moves. Yeah. Sensitization that you might, might be getting, you know, your brain is getting pain. It's my knee. I had a previous whatever on my knee. An avalanche of momentum and all of a sudden you're becoming overly sensitized to the particular little signal. That doesn't necessarily mean anything or might not necessarily mean anything other than you hurt this years ago and now your brain is really sensitized any type of disc of from that area. So again, I'm, I'm going off on another tangent, but I, again, it's just all bringing back movement, injury risk, 
performance, fitness. They're not just physical, physical wrapped, wrapped around in a cocoon of beliefs, biases, predispositions, expectations, prior experiences. And a lot of them are false. You know, a lot of them hark back to, you know, I, I broke my arm when I was a kid or my, my elbow. And now I, I'm really sensitive to any pain there. Oh no, that's my elbow again. Oh no, it's going to get worse. Oh no, I won't be able to throw something like, you know, Again, I better stop there because I'm, I'm I'm definitely going off in tangents. Can I just check back with you? Did that make a degree of sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the what you touched on there in terms of empowering the athlete to speak up and, and the coach and that conversation and how important that is in terms of if you want to have all your hints and your, you know, your objective markers, but ultimately that conversation of uh, looking under the hood, I think you framed it as with the athlete checking. Uh, when you are managing a large group uh, and you want to empower the athletes to be able to speak up, um, how, for the younger athletes, I guess, how do you sort of educate them on certain things that you know, are okay soreness the next day, like you mentioned residual soreness and, other, and things that you really need to communicate uh, to the team so we can help you manage? Well, I guess there's, um, there's probably a couple of approaches. First of all, what you do is trying, for example, a very pragmatic thing, be, okay, let's get a scale on this. If this is something that's recurring, you have a history of prior hamstring. And now, you know, a third of the way into a game, you feel your hamstring start to tighten up. So maybe we put a kind of a rating around that. And that could be a scale that, that we develop. The important thing is that when you say, okay, well, it's a, whatever it is, six out of 10, the coach understands kind of what you mean. And that can only come out in graduate conversation. That gives you some very fluffy, but subjective measure that, that someone can, can lock on to and use to kind of gauge um, where they are. But also they get learned that, well, actually, you know, it always goes to six, but that doesn't stop me playing. It's fine. So that gives you a little bit of positive feedback. Um, so so I think there's, we undervalue the, the worth of those subjective measures, not so much as an empirical tool to tell me exactly where your hamstring is at the moment, but more as a longer term educational. Yeah, it's a six. Yeah, but you know what? Six is fine because I always get through stuff when it's six. It's only when it gets to eight that I really need to worry. You can only arrive at that point that kind of more perceptive, insightful, regulated point if you go through some kind of learning process first. But I'd say is sometimes having that measure and, and the criticism is like, well, it's, you know, it's so subjective, it doesn't mean anything. But the thing about having that measure is it kind of impels the athlete to think about, well, how is it actually feel? Okay, you know, again, it's a sick feeling like that. And that's much better than just, ah, oh, there's my hamstring starting again. Because now we need to start to build in, okay, well, look, is there something we can do before training or the night before training to try and reduce that? And it just gives you a kind of a, an anchor around which you can suddenly start to modulate other things to see what works and what doesn't. And with, I was going to say nearly every athlete, but the large portion of, 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 of athletes, there's always going to be injuries. There's always going to be those type of things. Uh, pain, they're always going to be there, especially towards the back end of careers, especially in some sports. But I think what we have done in professional sport, sport is fostered a fear of the, like a fear of your bra brain saying, oh, your knees being uncomfortable. And we don't have to be afraid of them. We have to be aware of them, but we don't have to be. And sometimes if you get an injury, you're always going to have sensitivity. It doesn't necessarily mean the injury is getting worse or risk is getting higher. So we need to kind of educate ourselves. We explore these things with the athletes in a little more detail. If I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, yeah, but I don't have time for it. Okay, you don't have time to do it perfectly, but you always have time to, okay, how can we um, evolve processes at the club that start to unpick this? And, you know, 
that subjective monitoring is is a good way of doing it. Uh, there's one other interesting sideline here that that has come up quite a bit in the past few years, and that's mental fatigue. Like, what is mental? Is it related? To, and you know, it's obviously they're related, but if you measure them, they're 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 slightly different things. Now, mental fatigue can be brought on by you have had to make a lot of decisions, or there's a lot of anxiety building up to this game, or it's a really big game, or it's your first World Cup, or yada yada yada. All these types, and and that you know because it is a stress exerts an influence on everything. The decisions you make, your mood, how you move, how you coordinate, uh, the kind of um, the really quick decisions you'll make during during a, a game. Fatigue affects those things, and your performance declines, and your injury risk goes up. What do you do about mental? You know, we've all these strategies about you know what you do with physical fatigue. You know, and that's another whole shit show that sits over there. Um, but with the mental fatigue, what do you do about mental fatigue? Not so easy. Again, we need education there. There are strategies. But it, maybe a key take-home would be, and, and this happens quite a lot, if it's coming up to a big event, there's going to be a lot more stress on people, like Olympics, Cup Final, whatever it might be. Mental fatigue is, just because of the environment, is it going to be higher? Stress levels are going to be higher. The coach tends to get nervous. I'm sure you'll have seen it. I've seen it multiple times. Coach gets nervous under pressure, so the coach can meet, you know, Holds to the players more and more and more and more and more instructions and more detailed instructions and don't forget to do this. And really it is the coach kind of transmitting mental and stress to the player. So totally non-productive. Whereas yeah. the coach would be well, now I need to be I need to be an example of how to carry myself under pressure. Regardless of what's going on under the hood, I just need we're good. We've done this a thousand times. This is not a problem. This is what we do. Just slot into your routine get into your normal habits, go through your normal process, but we'd be good. But nothing happens the other way. No, no, this game is really important. We have to remember to do this and don't forget to do that. And you need to cover this man back every single time and keep, you know, amplifying rather than that um, stress, anxiety, information overload. It's It seems to be something that's um, come quite uh, re- relevant throughout the whole chat in terms of having that awareness and then being able to make sure that you're, you don't sort of project your own emotions and um, what's going on under the hood in front of your athletes or to your athletes, but being able to have a, a second to think and be a bit more, I guess, collected before you make rash decisions. What, what have you found effective for maybe coaches that haven't built up that awareness yet of, uh, where their emotions sort of take control and what are some effective strategies to be able to be aware and have a second to think before uh, reacting? If I was to look back on my history, what I would think is, I think there was years when I was a bad coach. I was a bad coach because I felt for the illusion that, oh, I'm quite good at this, you know, and I've good experience and I've worked with good athletes, so I must be good. Instead of kind of thinking, hang on a sec, working with good people, being with successful athletes, doesn't mean you're good. To be better, then what do I need to do to be better? Well, I need to dissect what I do. And that includes my thought processes, how I react, how I communicate. And I need to, yeah, I need to have objectives. If I'm going training, if, uh, sorry, if, if I'm going to coach a squad, then I need to go through the same process as they do. I don't need to do a physical warm-up. I definitely need to do a mental warm-up. It may be that, you know, I'm carrying stress from at home or, in, you know, some argument at your partner, whatever it might be. I need a way to clear that. I need to get all that crap out of my way because I need to, I need, like, for me, coaching is a performance. And it's not about me being me. You know, it's me being the best coach I can be. You know, that sounds like very kind of, but what I mean is 
what do I need to, to be uh, able to handle this coaching session and deliver the best possible product for the athlete? And that could be changing my mood, forgetting the stress about, oh, geez, the traffic, blah, blah, blah. Having some way of clearing all of that aside so you can make good, clear decisions. This may sound ridiculously simple, but the best hack that I've come across in the past 15 years or so is just, and I always have a little notebook just tucked into my waistband. And if an athlete says something to me, I write it down. You know, if the, and if there's follow-up need, I write it down. And any small thing I notice, I write it down. And then that night, I go through it and I put it into an A4 for the next day. And what that, that does is just, in a very simple way, it, you know, if, if you're in a busy camp, thousands of interactions potentially a day, some of them will be important. You'll need to remember. I used to always assume, why? I will not remember that. How do you know if you didn't remember something? A lot of the time, it won't come back to bite you. It'll just be the athlete said, well, I said that to him a couple of days ago, but he, he never got back to me. And that kind of is one of these little things that starts to erode the athlete's faith and trust and perception of you as someone who is diligent and really cares about what, what's right for them. So yeah, I mean, I think, what have I said there? As a building relationship, puts getting ready for the session and treating... And it's a warm-up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... You know, it evolves over time, but I would have a step-by-step process. You know, if I was going into a camp, I would have my objectives for the camp. How will I know if I did well? Not if the team did well, but what are the metrics by which I will know if I did well? And they can't be someone else's metrics. You know, someone gives you a pat on the back or something like that. It's like, okay, well, I know my we think about all these different things, but sometimes I forget the thing in front of me. So I need to stay really, really focused. I'd have a, I'd have a, this is oversharing now in a big way, but I'd have a kind of a routine. When I wake up, first thing I do is I look at my BA4 when I fill the page, I filled out today. What, what are my key things for today for training? And then I'd be walking to training. I'd be going through my, my I'd be clearing out all the crap. I'd be uh, saying, okay, what decisions do I need to make? What decisions need to be made quickly? And what can be parked until slower time? When I, when I can uh, work through them in the way that they deserve because they're hard, hard decisions or big decisions. You know, and then, I'll have my notebook and then that night I'll transcribe all, all, all my notes from that. And that's, I guess, a basic skeleton of the day. My process is just having a process, having a process and maybe having a way to evaluate yourself. Um, an evaluation could be, again, at the start of a campaign, you set your, your objectives for your performance and and on the length, maybe in between, at some junctures in between or at the end of that, you evaluate that. And it's just that you evaluate and it's like, what do I do well? Okay, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back for that. And, and then obviously the next step from that is, how do I get better at this? What do I need to fix? So again, big rambly answer to a short question. No, it's good. There's some gems there for sure for, for anyone that works in the, in the coaching realm. And uh, I think that mental warm-up's not something I've heard of before, but it does resonate in terms of coaching his performance uh, and then have a process that you can stick to that's not relying on others. Like I said, sort of pat on the backs from someone else, but it's you know, your clear areas of focus to how to win the day, I guess, and then reflecting on it at the end of the day and having areas you can improve and, and taking notes. I think that also resonated for me as well. That's something I like to do where you will get hit with a lot of pieces of information on the gym floor or on the field. And yeah, if you don't write them down, they're impossible to remember it when you're in the in the heat of the coaching realm, that's for sure. Well, yeah, I, I think that was kind of a, I don't want to say a breakthrough, but that, that was a good one. You get information and you always think at the time, I remember that. That's no problem. Yeah. But you don't just keep score. You know, you don't follow up. Come to this there. Was there something that I forgot? Because you forgot it. You know, so I, yeah. I, uh, so I, I think those type of hacks 
do work really well. And from the athlete's perspective, is it was only a minor comment, but he came back to me. It doesn't matter, but yeah, it shows professionalism, diligence, and we need to project that. We The athlete's career in the time that you're working with them is the biggest thing in their life. Coaches and medical staff, and they're thinking in a very root-based way, are they the best person to help me? Can they help me reach my long, longer-term ob- ob- objective? And if not, if they have some kind of signal in their head that's saying, no, not really, oh, no, he, he doesn't like me or she doesn't like me or I don't understand what they ever say or they don't listen, that's really toxic. That is really toxic. And, you know, we could easily have come on and talked about, you know, technique this and sets and reps and durations, that, but... You know, that's kind of the trivia. You push them a little bit more, but not too much every day physically and and they'll get better. But there's this whole other world that we're not educated on. You do any of the the conventional courses. There's not very, very little on uh, the non-physical influences on physical adaptation. So we've only really started. We've kind of dived too much into this deep end of technical form, sex reps, et cetera, et cetera. Neglected this whole other bit, which is the art of coaching and looping back to where we came in at the start. It's this, the non-physical stuff that for me characterizes the truly great coaches from the... Bartholomew's work in terms of communication, are there some other standout resources that coaches that want to improve in, in this aspect, the softer side, the communication, decision-making, I guess, self-awareness, being able to control your emotions? Well, I guess the obvious thing to do is refer people to this, this whole decision-making literature over there they're taking. I, I, I guess I think it is... For me, if I just look back at me, there was that typical early career arrogance where I thought I was good on the basis of bugger all evidence. It's very easy for us as humans to take in positive feedback and excuse or explain away negative feedback. Well, that wasn't really my fault. That was actually, you know, that type of thing. What we do is wind it back. And again, it's just awareness. We don't do it consciously. It's not like we're all big-headed, but... It's a natural human tendency. If you work with something and you think you plan something, you agree with that plan, you think that plan is right, unless you go and actively look for negative critical feedback, you're going to drift along in this bubble where, well, all my decisions are right. Because it's yeah. so easy to gain away. Well, it would have worked if that didn't happen. And that was out of my control. You know, those type of... So, I, yeah, so I guess there's so much for us to work on in coaches. I would think it's just, it's awareness. It all starts with self-awareness. I think it all starts with curiosity, willingness to learn, willingness to look outside of convention a lot of the time because our conventions are rudimentary. We're, we're a very young science. You know, we kind of, because we live in a short time scale, we kind of think, well, you know, sports science has been around for whatever, 40 years, let's say. That's a long time. No, it's not. You know, we're only scratching the surface of it. And, you know, we're going to have to be really open to what's happening now with AI and machine learning. You know, in, in a world of big data and cloud computing, things are going to change pretty, but some things might not change. And I think that that building a sense of purpose, shared purpose, shared mission, ensuring not in a way that is um, like active, but in a way that is uh reflective of your mission as a coach. I want to service this athlete's needs, a foundation of, of good coaching. Regardless if, if you're working with kids who will never, no one will ever hear of, or if you're working, you know, top uh, athletes in, in the world, that's for me the fundamental ingredient to effective good coaching. What a way to wrap it up. I think we might leave it there, John. We had our difficulties, but we persisted and I'm glad we had this chat. Uh, for those that aren't aware, we 
we had a bit of hiatus halfway through, but um, we stuck at it, which I really appreciate you sticking around, John, and, and having this chat. For those that have any follow-up questions um, for you, John, is there a best place to get in contact in terms of social media? Um, I'm I'm on Twitter at at Simply Sports Site, and I'm on Instagram on the on, on the same handle. Perfect. To add the links. Any questions? I realised I went on a lot of different tangents, and I'm sure a lot of things weren't clear. But if there's anything I can do to help, feel free to contact me. No, I think you've created a lot of uh, lateral thinking, which is really uh, important. Like you said, the the sets and reps and all those technical sides they are important early on. But what makes greatness is is the stuff that's uh, you know, working with your athletes and being able to build that buy in that people side. So I really appreciate that. Uh, it's definitely got me thinking, and I've I've got two pages full of notes that I'm looking forward to digesting. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, for, for for those that have tuned in, if you missed the start uh, of this episode, it will live on our YouTube channel, and then we'll post it on our podcast in the coming Wednesday in three weeks' time. And our next live chat is with Jacob Jennings, who's a sports scientist at the Brisbane Broncos. That's next Thursday, fifteenth of June. So make sure to tune in for that one, three p.m. Australian Standard Time. Thanks again, John. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as Q&A segment, aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the strength conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or, um, do physically that 
um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.